Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Tooth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's guest is Pran Darshan, telling us the story of his first kiss. On the surface, it's fun, it's light, sometimes frightening, but it's really the conversation that we have afterward that I found so reflective and so honest and frankly, sometimes difficult, but it's really compelling and Pran has a lot to say about the circumstances behind the story. But first, let's listen to his fantastic story recorded live at 21 Soho. So the story is a very weird one. It's all over the place. But before I start with it, I just want like cheers or woohoo if you remember your first kiss. Okay, room back there was a bit quiet. Maybe you don't want to remember it. That's okay. You will remember your first kisses and I hope you do. But I want us to go back like a trip down memory lane, if you will. And not your first kisses. That'd be weird if I knew those. But I want you to just picture my first kiss. And two very important things for context when I use the word shift, so I lived in Ireland for a while, for the Irish amongst you, you might know this, but shift in Ireland means, depending on context, either kiss, making out, there's just a lot of tongues involved, so just picture that when I say shift. And then the other one, which is the more important context, is I went to a single-sex boarding school in India. And to put the picture out there, imagine, just, just close your eyes for a second, and imagine this big, big fucking rock in the middle of the city, like, it's, it's huge. It's 100 acres huge, roughly the size of 70 soccer fields, and it's 300 feet high, middle of the city. And on top of this rock is a Mughal fort from the 10th century. And inside that fort is my school. <laughs> my, my school is the only school in the world on a fort, and it sounds very prison-esque, and it does. Uh, but it was home. It was home for a very long time. And when you've been in a single-sex school for as long as I have, which is the entirety of my youth, your interaction with the opposite sex is very limited. Uh, emails are as exciting as it gets. And as, as we slowly started coming of age, you'd have a lot of my friends, a lot of my senior students kind of getting into long-distance relationships, you know, having partners. I wasn't that person. I was what you would call a late bloomer. And this, this really gets to me now. I was, I was 18, and I hadn't had a first kiss. And being the only unkissed boy on the fort was a real, real issue that I struggled with because much like most students in my school, when you entered grade 11 or junior year, you would go on a foreign exchange. And so did I. I went to Canada for six months. And when I came back, my friends were boasting about having shifted 50-odd girls, having slept with half as many. I came back with nothing. I mean, I made lifelong friendships. I'm still really good friends with a lot of these people. But but the shift, the shift eluded me. And it sounds ridiculous when I say this now, but I genuinely felt like I was well past my prime. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but there's hope. There's hope around the corner. That's what the story is. I met this incredible girl. I used to be a debater, so I went into the national leagues and met this incredible girl through my time debating, and we started dating. Long-distance relationship. I hadn't seen her since that first debate. But she was going to be in school for a week because of a conference that the school was hosting. And this was it. This, this, this was my opportunity. So we're back from Christmas break. It's freezing. She's back on the fort. And we meet. We meet during lunch. But it's weird. You can't really start shifting in the middle of all your school and the teachers around. And there's this oppressive, like, social norms as well where, like, relationships are frowned upon. 
what the school does is they make them stay in boarding houses quite similar to ours. So our boarding houses used to be these old fuck-off military barracks, like 40 feet high. All the houses, the guest houses included, were the same structure. But what they do, this is cruel, what they do is they make the girls stay in literally the other side of the fort. So if I'm on the southwest corner, they're on the northeast. And there's walls between us, security guards getting in the way of love. And that's not going to stop me. It really isn't. So midnight happens. My warden's fast asleep. I have two of my friends and we're plotting this big journey. And they're with me not because some false sense of camaraderie, because they're hoping to get the shift as well. But we decide this is it. This is now or never. And so we slide down the pipes. We slide down some 40 feet, hop onto the tiny walls, get to the western front of the fort wall, and then we start making a way across to the northern bit. And this is like a three-foot wide fort wall. There's a 300-foot drop to my left. There's a 20-foot drop to my right. This is also the time I should tell you I'm dead terrified of heights. Like if I was closer to the stage, I would get a bit of vertigo and I would fall. And so we're coming up to the northern bit of the fort wall. It's been a while. We're running. And I have a friend in front of me, a friend behind me. And my friend behind me just starts mumbling under his breath. Oh, fuck, that's high. Don't look down. Don't look down. Fuck, that's high. And you know that thing when somebody tells you to not do something and you do that exact thing? I look to my left. Gwalior was a small town. We used to have a train station on the north bit. And you can see, like, lights flickering in the distance, the sound of the train announcements. There's a bit of tranquility in that moment. And then I look further down, and that's when the vertigo hits me. The true scale of this height really just washes over me, and I trip, and I fall. But I fall forward, and my friend grabs a hold of me. And so I'm on my knees, I'm scuffed, and I'm bruised, and I'm bitter scratches, but I am not of the fort wall. We, we pause, and we're pondering whether we want to do it, and here's, here's the true scale of what's a, you know, what I could lose. I'm the head prefect, so if I'm caught, I'm not setting a good example. I'm three months away from setting my leaving cert equivalent, so if I'm get, I get caught, I'm expelled, and I don't get to do it. But here's the thing. If I don't make it to her house, I will be the last unkissed boy on the fort. <laughs> Death is not a factor here. I need to get the shift. So we catch a breath, we take our moment, and we make it to their bit. We make it to the east side. We hop off another wall. We get to the base of their building, and there it is, right in front of us, just right above us, this massive, apologies again, this massive fuck-off structure in front of us that we now have to scale. And here's the thing. It's easy to slide down a pipe when it's 40 feet. It's fucking difficult when you have to climb back up. And we, we try and plan this out. We see the ledges, we see a pipe, we see some exposed bricks. And as we planned it in our head, we thought we were going to be like these parkour artists or these Assassin's Creed characters just going about our way. No, that wasn't it. We were completely inelegant, stepping on each other. Just, it was all over the place, but we get, we get there. We finally get there. And I hauled myself over the ledge and we made it to the second floor. We're in the same building, guys. It's about to happen. But wait, I thought I had to go down the corridor and that would have been it. But between the 19th century and present day, the school had just blocked these houses in two halves. Like they split them apart. And there was a wall between us, literally. And to stop the students from kind of shimming across the ledge, they installed this triangular mesh-looking thing that was jutting out. And I couldn't get on it because I would fall 30 feet. And we, we convened, the three of us. We sit around. We're like, okay, lads, we're not going to do it. There's no way this is probable. We could really die. Uh, we don't want to tempt fate again. But as they're talking, it's just nonsense. It's just noise in my head. Because I, I, as I was making this journey, I had this Shakespearean image of her, like Juliet, waiting for me in the balcony on the other side. And as they're talking, I just get on the ledge. I plant my right hand into the mesh. 
I swing my left leg out. I take my left hand, plant it on the ledge, just dig, dig, dig it into the mesh, and I let my feet go. And here's the thing. I'm not the most ripped guy now, but believe me when I say this, I was half of what I'm now then. Uh, I was scrawny. I had no strength in my fingers. I was exhausted beyond all comprehension, and I could really feel gravity pulling me down. And I start digging through this mesh because love is waiting for me at the end. And I'm losing all strength. Like every fiber of my being hurt in that moment. I had muscles aching that I didn't know existed. I, I, I was ready to resign myself to fate. I was like, okay, I'd rather die on this brave adventure than return the unkissed boy. And just when I think it's over, I just swing my right leg out and my heel lands on the edge of the ledge. And... <laughs> And I haul myself over to the other side and I collapse. And again, I was hoping that she'd be waiting, but it's taken me nearly three hours to get here. (laughs) She is fast asleep. Somebody had to go wake her up. And so they do. We go to the end of the corridor. We find a private spot away from peering eyes. And we share a kiss, which was sloppy and all over the place. Just, you know, as first kisses go. But I think it was sincere. I think it was exactly what I think a first kiss should be. And we, we had a tender moment that we shared. But here's the real kicker. Would you believe I made that trip every single night for an entire week? <laughs> and I'm a great kisser now, but still terrified of heights. Uh, so, so that's the story of my first kiss. Pran, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me. How does it sound to your ear to hear that story back? It's so long back now that hearing my own version of that story is just, why would anybody do this? Like, this is just absolutely ridiculous. I wouldn't do that now. (laughs) But it's just how far you go when you're a teenager and you're like, everything is at risk, but that's okay because I need to get the first kiss. And was this a conscious choice at that time? It was like you were aware that you were taking the kind of risks you were taking or were you really assessing this looking back? I think a lot of it has been assessing the risk in hindsight. I think the true scale of what was actually going down only hit me when I tripped and fell. Oh my gosh. And thank goodness you fell forward. (laughs) I mean, you really could have died many times on this. And then you did it seven (laughs) more times or something like that. My favorite part is that the kiss wasn't even that great. No, it really wasn't. It really wasn't. But like, I don't know, you don't know what you're doing when you're that age or like you've never really had a kiss. I think what I thought the kiss would be and what I was running towards and what actually ended up happening, it was special, but in different ways. It wasn't... Because it wasn't about the actual kiss. It was about not being unkissed any longer. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the slightly not so romantic and sappy side of the story, which is like the social pressures of being in a single sex military institution, the peer pressure of like, well, masculinity. I wanted to ask you, like, how did everyone know this about you? Was it just a common discussion among the boys? Like what was going on? I think in hindsight, there was a lot of them that hadn't had their kisses. But I think maybe there was something about the sincere honesty and kind of coming back from that six months in Canada and being like, yeah, I just made really good friends, but like, yeah, didn't get a kiss. And they're like, oh, lame. It's like, oh, God, yeah, I am really lame for not doing that. And you really internalized that. I really did. 
especially in that environment, which was very, very hyper-masculine. And I think to be knocked down of that masculinity ladder just because you haven't lied about having sexual experience was a big blow. So between death and social expulsion, I would have picked death. Yeah, well, to our brain, social expulsion is close to death. I mean, the idea that you'd be sort of kicked out of the club you were trying to be in Mm -hmm. among these boys was no small thing to an 18-year-old brain. Yeah, no, absolutely. I joke about this now, but like it's a miracle I'm not weird around people of other genders simply because of how narrow A, the gender definitions were in the school, but also just like you're only around men and there is no questioning of exploring of sexuality, exploring of different gender identities. Then there's the whole Indian patriarchy imposed upon you. And then you're in this military environment where it's like military generals, basically, like senior kids treat you that way. Oh, my god! It's the very narrow definitions of everything. I identify as queer and I had no space to even think about it then because there was no space to have those conversations. I think there's something about coming into puberty in an environment that is just with men, but also young men who are confused who don't have any knowledge whatsoever, no access to sexual health education, no access to any introduction of feminism in the world. There's no concept of that. It does something to you. I think it does creep into parts of you that, you know, even you're not very cognizant of. It sounds like maybe that was where you picked up on more of the really negative side mm-hmm. as, as relates to, to girls and others off the fort. Yeah, it was a weird, weird time. And like, I have so many instances and so many stories that that was never okay. But at the time you laugh it off because you don't want to be the guy who calls out everybody else in the whole culture. I think our emotional bonding came by virtue of being beaten together at 12 a.m. in the morning by hockey sticks and less about sharing feelings and sharing emotion and sharing heart. And we struggled. I, I struggled for so long. I don't have a lot of friends that I stay in touch with from Fort. But I, every time we've had a Zoom call, like a group call over the pandemic, you'd always have people not talking about what they were up to, what their lives look like now, but reliving like the past and not just reliving of like, oh, you remember the house cup? Sure, there was some of that. But the reliving of like, oh, do you remember the hockey match we lost in year 10? Then we were beaten by hockey sticks. That, that is a very real thing that happened. Or being beaten by soccer boots because you lost a soccer match. Whether you played that match or not doesn't matter. I mean, I remember looking into one of my peers' eyes as we were both getting kicked. That's the only other person in the world who understands what that felt like in that moment. Ron, is this why they do it? Like, what is the... Or is it just sadistic and... It's power. It's just power. What was so hard then, still is to an extent, but I think I have a lot more empathy now, is the guys who were hitting us with hockey sticks had had that done to them, Mm. like some years ago, by somebody who had had that done to them. It's like this vicious cycle of it happened to us, it's going to happen to you. This is the norm. This is how we turn boys into men from soft shells to tough lads who can take on the world and be leaders of tomorrow. But just because it happened to you doesn't mean it should happen to other people. But very few people made that decision to not do it. I've hit people twice in my life on that fort, which is absolutely on the lower tier of what other people doled out to us and what a lot of my peers doled out to other kids. But the fact that I too fell prey to that cycle of wanting to reclaim a sense of power, wanting to, you know, be the alpha male Mm. in some sliver of a way and what a pathetic way now to see it as like by beating a kid. Uh. You did it. I feel sad on several levels, including 
how did you heal from realizing that you'd fallen prey to it? It's it's not easy mm. because my parents raised me to be an emotional man. I used to be quite a sensitive kid. I remember my mum worrying and confiding in one of her friends who was my play school principal, but also like a psychologist. And she said, you know, boys are allowed to be emotional. You know, next time Pranav cries, just say, it's okay. You can cry. And so I grew up in a house where I was allowed to cry and I was allowed to share and I was allowed to show emotion. And then suddenly at 13, plucked off my own decision. Nobody forced me to go to boarding school. If anything, I was so goddamn excited to be away from my family. And so to then be in an environment where for the things that I thought were good and were so natural to me, I was punished for, shriveled up a big part of me. And so I can describe to you the exact way that that happened I was head prefect. This is November of 2014. And three year tens have run down the fort to go watch a movie. And they're very friendly with us. And we're grand with it. We're like, yeah, listen, just, you know, come back, be safe. And we asked them to come back at like seven because seven used to have, be the roll call and they haven't come back. And now it's 10 p.m. They still haven't come back. We're worried. And then so the head of discipline is around us and he's like hounding us he's like you're a prefect you should know better he's like oh you're so worthless as a prefect if you don't know where your year tens are and that hits a very soft part of me and the crisis of masculinity hits he's mm. like how dare they are a bad reflection of how shitty a leader i am shouldn't have gone soft on them must have been tough they must fear me so we ring them up we ask them to come up they were like oh sorry we got distracted you know one thing led to another anyway they come back everything's been settled now there's not nothing needs to escalate I'm sitting in the dormitory. I like that's this is not good. I'm not happy about this. And I leave. I was the classic example of somebody really holding their anger together. So anytime I'd get angry, I'd just remove myself from the situation because I didn't want to be the one lashing out. But then an hour later, as I'm studying in my prep room, I hear them laughing <laughs> and I hear them joke about something. I think mentioned my name weren't making fun of us weren't making fun of how like they took some time they were actually joking with one of my friends who also kind of was annoyed at them for this but in that moment pressed and sensitive and being told I'm a shed head prefect and I'm not man enough I walk out of the prep room I ask them to line up in front of me because line up was a word we used where like everybody stood in line and I just take a flip-flop and smack them one after the other and as I'm doing it, there's a part of me that's just like, oh, you fucking idiot. Why are you doing this? But there's another part of me like, no, he needs to be man enough. They stop. They're in tears. Everybody's like, Pran's never done this. Wow. What the fuck has just happened? And I ask them to go. And then I go back into the prep room away from everybody and I break down because I just know I've done something so against my own nature. That hasn't done me any good. That hasn't done them any good. And I just feel like the biggest piece of shit that's ever alive. And so I take half an hour, I calm myself down, I go to them and I say, what I've done is inexcusable, but I am sorry. And this is what happened. And I really want you to know that this will never happen again. And they were like, oh, Pranav, it's fine. It's like, no, you're not saying that because you mean it. You're allowed to be pissed with me. You're allowed to be angry with me. I'm really sorry. 
and I left. And I, for years, I still felt shitty about this. Those people have gone on to have thriving lives of their own, and I'm, I sincerely hope they're doing well. But that one particular moment, which for them must have been like an average day, because that was our average days when we were their age. We, I'd been whipped in the face by like all manner of things. But for me, I did the one thing that I'd promised. When I became a senior kid, I promised never to hit kids. I promised to treat them with respect. I never asked them to do my task. I never asked them to make my bed, any of that. I always used to all do all of those things on my own. And then I let myself massively down. And so that's what I mean. That environment kills a part of you so sensitive. It's the, it's like a weird symbiote parasite taking over you. But I still did it. I have to take responsibility. Yeah. So as you're telling that story, several things jump out. And among them are how quickly you recovered, how quickly you recognized what had happened. Like 30 minutes, you said? Like, mm-hmm. that's pretty remarkable self-possession, I would argue. What's the process been of reconciling that behavior, of getting just straight with yourself about how it happened and what did you learn from it? Every time, and this stands for school, this stands for later in life, every time I've tried to go against my nature, I have been deeply unhappy. And I think that one instance is one of many instances in my life where I've gone against my nature. I'm a deeply sensitive person. Mm. I am emotional. I give a shit about people. The hardest part of it all to reconcile is that I made a 15-year-old feel horrible, especially knowing how horrible it felt when I was 15 and had those things done to me. And so to be that for somebody, to have someone think of you and say, oh, he used to be good, but then he hit us in the face with a flip-flop. I have to say, I see it so differently. I think the way bigger lesson of this is you're human, you fucked up, and then you recognized it and went back to them, owning it and Mm -hmm. apologizing and addressing it. And to me, that's the story. Yeah. And I think it's where I am now. But the road to getting to there has been a lot of learning to forgive myself. When you've lived in an environment, when you're told constantly that you're not adequate, that sense of inadequacy finds itself in cracks which come out when you least expect them. And then those aren't just cracks, they expand and they seep out. And for me, that happened two years into my relationship, my first ever relationship outside of school. So this is in Dublin. There's so many factors to it. We were an interracial couple. We were in a city where like I was a heavy minority and I was attracted to different people. She was getting attracted to different people. We were growing out of the people we were when we met. All of this was happening rather than going to therapy or talking to somebody. I was like, no, I got to sort this out on my own. I'm an island. I've always been on my own. I can't let anybody in on this. Can't show weakness. Got to be man enough. Got to do it. I would give my partner the silent treatment. I'd walk out of the room hoping she would chase me. We'd have these big fights over nothing. I would be possessive when there was no reason to be. Just everything that I hate about a certain type of person was me. I was aware that I was becoming that person, but I just continued to do that again. I remember this one time my ex and I had this big fucking fight. like, And I used to have like a shitty HTC phone at the time. I took this phone and just smashed it against the wall. I felt that release was like, okay, anger gone. This is how we've always done this. We go in silence, bury it away or smash it away. And I saw the look of fear in my ex's eyes because that wasn't the fear of, oh, Pranav has just smashed the phone. That was the look of, am I next? Absolutely. And that is a look you never want to get. Oh, that's sparking that fear in someone else. And like, if you can read that in the 15 year old's face, if you can read that in your ex's face, it's coming back to you like a mirror. Uh 
that's pain, right? To know that you caused that. And to have someone you love feel so deeply unsafe around you. Mm-hmm. I was a boy pretending to be a man. That relationship ending, I didn't end that relationship, she did. And I'm so deeply grateful that she did. That ending of that relationship ripped the band-aid off. Like, it was like, mate, now you have no excuse. You've got to sort yourself out. So what I should have done was as soon as I reached to Dublin, gone to therapy, I did that three years later. And that changed my life. <laughs> that was a little longer of a realization than the incident at the fort. but From still, 30 minutes to three years. To three years, yeah. But you used it as a catalyst for changing yourself. I can distinctly recall being in my 20s and having this self-conception of myself as a nice person mm-hmm. and having to confront the fact that there was a lot of evidence that I wasn't as a practical matter in the way I was living my life. And I had an identity crisis at that time around who am I? Mm-hmm. Like, who am I? How am I living that's so not in concert with this way I see myself or think I am? But then the evidence is to the contrary. But I'd say a lot more people have looked at the things that aren't so good about them and gotten terrified at what they're seeing and turned the other way. And that's okay. That's very human as well. I did it for so many times that then eventually at one point I was like, am I either now going to be the version of the person that I never want to be? Or I actually have to look myself, the monster in the mirror, and do something about it. People think going to a stranger and talking about your feelings is the worst part about therapy. I'd argue that's the easiest thing about therapy. The worst thing is having that stranger reflect back to you all the hearing about you and seeing about you. And you being confronted with all the ugly and not so good parts about you. But it's important work. It takes so much courage and anybody who's through whatever medium, therapy works for some people, mindfulness works for some people. Some people go on a retreat for six years and find themselves in the middle of Colombia, whatever works for you. But if you have ever confronted your self and inner self and seen these not so good parts of you, I think you know what that process looks like. It takes a lot of courage and sometimes you're ready to meet that. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you meet some parts of it and then sometimes you're like, maybe I'll table it for six years later. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Whatever your process is, I think it just it's we're constant works in progress. And I think how do I accept that I'm a human being who will make mistakes and is flawed? And how do I get okay with it? Because there's still times I'm not okay with it, but I'm learning to be okay with it. So all of this inner work and exploring your own path to growth and reconciling these different parts of you has probably played a role in you pursuing therapy as a career. When I moved to Trinity to study history and politics because I wanted to be in public policy, I had no idea that someday I would be in mental health in any shape, way or form. As soon as I landed in Dublin, I knew nobody in Europe. And the first thing I did, other than buy a guitar and settle my bag in holds, was sign up for a suicide helpline called Nightline, which was a student helpline run by students. And doing that work, being on a helpline with somebody who doesn't know who you are, but being able to offer somebody support, especially at times when someone's going through something very difficult or is having suicidal thoughts, is going through a horrible time in their life, made me feel more alive than sitting through any political science lecture ever. And that was free. That was voluntary work. And so the cog started turning of like, okay, I'll take this good degree. It's a very good degree. But how do I start pivoting towards any career in mental health? If I can just do more of this. And this was before I was in therapy. And then I volunteered with different, you know, charities. I volunteered with the counseling service in Trinity. They had face-to-face support. So you basically took on a client for a year, offered them peer support, met them once every two weeks. And I went into psychoanalytic psychotherapy and found that experience transformative. 
And I had a very frank conversation with my therapist, which something on the lines of how do I do what you're doing for me? And we had one session where they looked at my options and they said, you know, you're going to struggle having a split career as a creative as well as a psychotherapist. But many people have done it. This is very feasible. I think you can do it. And they recommended that I should look into the masters in UCL because they would give me a strong foundation theoretically. Oh, and okay. then I could decide where I wanted to clinically train. And that's how I came here. Wow. Okay. Now I'm really piecing it together how this all happened. So it sounds like the direct exposure to doing something that you wanted to do so much that it was this unpaid work mm-hmm. tapped into something that was like a true passion. Yeah. When I listen back to your story, which I love, and it's this fun romp and letting us know about that moment in your life where you're really pursuing that kiss and that experience and Mm -hmm. that change in your status. When you told us the story, you really kept it at the level of this is what happened. And so I thought it was a little ironic and interesting (laughs) that you didn't actually like really dig into the emotional (laughs) truth of it on stage. Was that a conscious choice at that time? Would you do it differently if you were retelling it? At the time that I told the story, if I told like the actual, you know, trauma story version of like how traumatic that experience was and the stakes and why I was doing these things. I think I would have gone on the way of oversharing. Oversharing, sure. Because I didn't know how to exercise that restraint, basically. I think if I were to tell that story now as more confident human, I think I'd tell a more measured version of the story. I think I'd still keep laughs because that's just what I enjoy doing. And I like, you know, if somebody's coming to see me talk for five minutes, ten minutes, I would like to give you a laugh. Of course, yeah. But I think I'd bring more of the heart that is missing from that. Somebody listening to this now, this podcast, after listening to this story, now gets the background on why that kiss was so important. Mm -hmm. And I'd introduce some of that in the story and keep it less about the chase of the case and more about why I was chasing the case. And also just that you have more perspective now and it's only been a year. So kudos to you for that kind of growth and perspective gaining in such a short amount of time. So I would have to agree with you, even though I'm slightly calling you out on it. I understand that if you weren't ready to do it then, and it would only make sense to do it now with more time, Mm -hmm. then it makes all the sense in the world that you would make that choice creatively and in terms of self-presentation. If you ever did a B sides version of true story alumni of like inviting alumni to tell like a different version of this story you can sign me up for doing like a dark version of this story phenomenal idea okay we could probably do that with precisely you as (laughs) as that like deeper understanding but this is something that we are Mm. always updating on like how do you support someone in telling a true personal story at the right time, which version of the story are you telling now versus version of the story you can tell in a few years, you know, after you've had a chance to process some of the deeper meaning and things like that. But I think you've done it beautifully because we got to hear the fun, completely charming, highly entertaining story. Mm -hmm. And then we get this opportunity to hear Mm -hmm. so much of the backstory. And it's such a privilege, Pran. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's story and conversation, see the show notes at truestorylondon.com. And if you like what we're doing and want to sponsor us, you can do that on our website too. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by C-Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. And just one more thing. Please subscribe and rate us at your favorite podcast platform. It really does help, especially since we're a new podcast. 
Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon. 